minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Friday Erev Shabbos here at JM in the AM. Uh, today is a nine days format Friday. A little bit different than uh, what we're used to under normal circumstances. Uh, today we will continue our spoken word format. Rabbi Beryl Wine, uh, Rabbi Zev Siegel, Today's the 3rd of Av, so we will play my father's uh, eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe that he delivered on the 3rd of Av on the Rebbe's Shloshim in 1994. Um, so it's a little bit different, but we will have our weekly update. Malcolm Honline expected to join us at 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time. Harry Rothenberg, Rabbi Yudin. Everything you'd expect on a Friday morning broadcast here at JM in the AM. It is the 21st day of July, day number three. In the month of Menachem Av, the year is 5783, Tafshin Pei Gimel. Today is Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim, Shabbos Chazon, candlelighting time at 8.01 in New York. Make sure you know when things start where you are. And of course, uh, Tisha B'Av is Thursday, meaning it'll begin on Wednesday night. And then Thursday will be the observance of Tisha B'Av before we get back to our regular format and schedule. Rabbi Beryl Wine is going to kick things off this morning. There's a lecture we began late yesterday during the uh, 8 o'clock hour here at JM in the AM. We'll start from the beginning. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine has a brilliant series entitled The Difference of Opinion, Halachic Disputes in Jewish History. And um, and we will... Uh, we will start this morning's broadcast with the dispute or the halachic disputations that were common between Rav Yosef Karo and the Ramah. Rabbi Beryl Wine, his series available at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or by uh, logging on to RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Rabbi Beryl Wine here at JM in the AM. Tonight's lecture concerns itself with the... Uh two great figures uh, that form the basic uh, book of uh, halacha in Jewish history, which is the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, we are speaking about uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo and about Rabbi Moshe Iserlish. Yosef Karo is known as the Beis Yosef. He's known also as the Machaber, the author, meaning the author of the Shulchan Aruch. And uh, Ramosh Yisraelish is known as the Ramah, which are the uh, first letters of Rabbi Moshe Yisraelish. Now, I, Halacha always has to deal with outside circumstances. It never is formed in a vacuum. It's uh, as much as we would like to think that it's 
an ivory tower, uh, purely theoretical, uh, uninfluenced by people and events, uh, the aloha, because it is living and because it is relevant and pertinent to every generation, takes into account events uh, that are experienced by those who form it. Rabbi Yosef Caro is from the exiles of Spain. He was exiled from Spain in 1492 with his family. He wanders over the Mediterranean to the Balkans and then to Greece. Finally, he settles in Turkey. And eventually, he comes to the land of Israel, to the city of Tzvat. Another exile from Spain was his main teacher and mentor, Abiyakov Beirav, who also ends up in, in uh, the land of Israel. Now, the trauma of the exile of the Jews from Spain was in its time equal, though we cannot compare it in terms of numbers, but it was equal to the trauma that the previous generation suffered in its experiences in World War II. Uh, half the Jews in Spain converted to Christianity. Uh, the largest mass conversion in Jewish history. The other half left with nothing. It's estimated that almost 50,000 of them died on the roads, in the ships, going out of Spain. Now, you have to understand that the Jews in Spain, they were there 800 years. And they were wealthy, and they were part of Spanish society. Uh, they were the grandees. They served in the courts of the kings, both under Muslim and Christian rule. To the end, the treasurer of uh, the uh, emperors, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, was Don Isaac of Barbanel. Uh, the man that financed the voyage of Christopher Columbus was Avram Senor, who converted because he couldn't give up his money. So you're talking about a tremendous trauma. Jews always felt that when disasters strike, it's a prelude to the Messianic era. It's the Chevle Moshiach, the pains of the Messianic era. And since from the time of the destruction of the Second Temple till 1492, there never was such a disaster in Jewish life, so there naturally arose within the confines of the Jewish heart, the expectation that something great was going to happen that would somehow redress the balance scale, that would make it worth it, so to speak, if we can use those types of words regarding the human suffering that's involved. Rabbi Yaakov Be'rav 
together with other great Sephardic rabbis, came to the land of Israel in the expectation that this was the beginning of the Messianic era, and they wanted to be in the land of Israel because the Messiah would redeem the Jews and bring them all home. Now, according to an opinion that the Rambam expressed almost uh, 300 years earlier, a prelude to the Messianic era is the establishment of the uh, Torah's judicial system. And that's really the order that we have in the Amida and the uh, blessings that we recite every day. The first is Oshiva Shoftainu Kavarishona, and then it's Tkav Shofar Godol, and then it's Semach David, Bnei Yerushalayim, then it's Echazenu Einenu B'Shufcha L'Tzion Barachamim. But first is Hashiva Shoftainu Kavarishona, restore for us our tradition of justice and of judges. The Sanhedrin had expired in about 450 of the Common Era. So this is a thousand, thousand fifty years after the end of the Sanhedrin. But the Rambam had left the loophole because the question is, how can the Sanhedrin be renewed? In order for the Sanhedrin, in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you have to have ordination, smicha, from another member of the Sanhedrin. In other words, one generation ordained the next. If for a thousand, over a thousand years there was no member of the Sanhedrin, and we can say now for over two thousand years, so then how, how is it ever going to get started again? So Jews have an answer. Mashiach. We leave a lot of things to him. I think it's part of his hesitancy in coming. is because we have relegated so much to him. So we don't have to do anything, you know. We're going to sit and wait. If Yaakov Rav had a revolutionary idea, he was going to take the formula that the Rambam mentioned. The Rambam's formula is as follows, that if there is a conclave of the Talmidei Chachomim, of the scholars of Israel, who live in the land of Israel, those who live outside the land of Israel, no matter how great they are in Torah, are excluded, according to the Rambam. They have to live in the land of Israel. If they have such a gathering and they collectively feel that there is amongst them a person that is worthy of this ordination, they collectively can give him this ordination and revive the smicha. And then this person, since he now has the smicha, he can give it to others as well. And Rabbi Yaakov Erav called such a conference, and uh, many, many tens of rabbis attended, and they all agreed that Rabbi Yaakov Erav is the one to receive the smicha. And Rabbi Yaakov Erav, in turn, gave smicha to 20, 30 other great rabbonim, one of whom was Rabbi Yosef Karo. But the majority of the Jewish world did not accept that solution, did not agree that it had the power of the Sanhedrin. 
and it became a great dispute, uh, a dispute amongst rabbis, but the dispute spilled over into the Jewish street as well. And because of it, therefore, uh, that generation died without granting smicha to anyone else. So that in our time now, we're left uh, back at square one. And that's why all of the uh, attempts in our time to constitute Sanhedrins or to uh, uh, declare that such a thing is possible is met by very, very strong rabbinic opposition based on this uh, difficult experience. So Yosef Karo is an enormous scholar in a time of uh, exile, in a time where there are no computers, when he did not have access to libraries. He has an encyclopedic memory. He knows everything, literally. They wrote on him, Yosef, who amajbir Yosef is the one that provides the food of Torah to everyone. So he uh, writes a major work called Kesef Mishnah, in which he uncovers all of the sources of the Rambam in the Mishnah Torah. As you know, the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam contained no sources, no footnotes. It was one of the major criticisms of the Rambam's work. He set about to rectify that. So this enormous uh, encyclopedic work, Kesef Mishnah, which is published in almost every uh, edition of the Rambam today, uh, uncovered uh, 95, 97% of his sources. There are some that the Jewish detectives are still working to find. Then he wanted to write a more definitive work. And therefore, he took the Arboa Turim of Rabbi Yaakov ben Osher, the son of the Rosh. So the Rosh was an Ashkenazic Jew, one of the last of the Balei Tosafot. The Rosh lived in Regensburg. But when all the persecutions occurred, he fled to Spain. And he became the Rov in Toledo in Spain. And his son, Rabbi Yaakov, accompanied him with the other members of the family to Toledo. So he's an Ashkenazic Rov in a Sephardic community, which is an adjustment for both the community and for the Rov. And his son, Rabbi Yaakov, who was not a rabbi, who was not a Rosh Yeshiva, who was uh, a businessman, writes this monumental work in Halacha called the Arboa Turim, the Four Rows, in which he covers the gamut of Jewish law, and it becomes a very popular book. It's popular because of its excellent organization, you know, Rambam had his own 
method of organizing halacha. But the tours organization, which is Orachayim, how to the daily uh, matters and uh, holidays and Shabbat, and then Yoradeya, which is with questions of kashrut and of uh, interest and of nida and other things, and then Chosha Mishpat, which was monetary law, and then Evan Oezer, which dealt with marriage and divorce problems. That, that division became the basic way that Jews thought and still think about halacha today. All books after the tour use his system. So, Rav Yosef Karo writes a commentary to the tour called the Beit Yosef. And he writes that the reason that I write it to the tour is because I like his system. It's clear. Everybody can understand it. Everybody can follow it. And this Beit Yosef is the, com- not only the commentary, the, the commentary to the tour, it is the uh, basis of the Shulchan Aruch. He then, uh, after the debacle of the smicha, decides, well, if there's no Sanhedrin, there can at least be a book that all Jews can have that will tell them what the halacha is. So to speak, the Shulchan Aruch is the substitute for the Sanhedrin. It's the written Sanhedrin. And he... Uh, says at the onset that the times and the troubles, I don't want to read you the whole thing here, but that the times and the troubles are so great that people don't have time and don't have the ability to search through the Talmud and through search through all of the scholars to find out what to do. People, he said, are running for their lives. So here's a book I'm telling you what to do practical, and I follow exactly the order of the tour, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, that is the Shulchan Aruch. Now, he writes in his introduction, all of my decisions are based upon the works of three great men, Rabbi Yitzchok Alfasi, the Rif. Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, the Rambam, and Rabbeinu Osher ben Yechiel, the Rosh, the father of the tour. He really means the tour as well, because the tour always quotes his father. Adoni, Ovi, Mori said as follows. So he says, I base all my decisions on the opinions of these three great men, and when there is a disagreement... So then I will follow the majority. Well, since two are Svardim and one is Ashkenazi, when there's a disagreement, he always comes down on the side of the Svardim, which makes the Shulchan Aruch uh, not very appealing to Ashkenazic Jewry. Now, it's amazing that in a time, uh, you know, no Internet and no emails and uh, no regular uh, mail service, etc. 
that the book spreads and in five years it spreads throughout the entire Jewish world and everybody knows about it and comments and the rabbis write back and forth and a great dispute arises whether such a book is of value or not. So there are two facets to the problem. One facet is the... Uh, the heads of the yeshivos, the great rabbis, the great lomdim, such as Shlomo Luria, the marshal, who was the rov in Lublin, and others say, you know, that's, is this the way to learn Torah? You look it up? You want to learn, you got to sit down, and you have to go through the entire discussion in the Talmud. You have to see what Rashi says. You have to go through the entire process. After you go through the entire process, then you can come to a decision. But here you're going to do a, open a page, you're going to, you know, dial a page and say, you know, this is allowed and this is not allowed. You will defeat the idea of learning Torah properly. That's one objection. That objection, by the way, is raised continually to all new methods of studying Torah and Talmud. It's the objection to art scroll, for instance. Because, you know, you don't have to sit and learn because it's there, you know. This way you're supposed to work at it. It was the object When Rashi wrote his commentary, there were objections to it because they said, you know, now it's a... You don't have to work at it. So there's always that hidden objection that we don't want to make Torah too easy. I don't want to make it too pat. And part of the reason is because Torah Shabal Peh is a living organism. And once you put it down in writing, it's not living anymore. And once there's no human effort and discussion, so then it becomes uh, petrified. And the second objection was, who's he? Why should I listen to him? which is a uh, typical Jewish reaction to everyone. There's a... My father used to say that, uh, that uh, in, in, in Kovna, they made a uh, streetcar or a bus that ran through the Jewish neighborhood. And they had Jewish conductors... And so the conductor went through the, the bus or the train and the, to collect the money. He comes up to a Jew and he says, uh, you know, did you pay? And, you know, it's 10 kopecks, whatever it is. He says, look at this. He says, Yankel's son is asking me for money. Who's he? So there's an element of who's he that is always present here. Now we go to the other person. We're going to balance them. Because it's a, uh, it really is an unlikely team. I mean, Moshe Hisserlish is in Krakow. Uh, he is a prodigy. At the age of 18, he is already on the beddin of Krakow as one of the judges. Also, a tremendous encyclopedic mind. Far different temperament than Rabbi Yosef Karo. Rabbi Yosef Karo has gone through 
the exile from Spain. He's gone through the fight over the smicha. He's to a certain extent been annealed in the fire of what Jewish life can be. And therefore there's like a, uh, not a hard edge, but there's, there's no, uh, uh, what shall I say, there's, there's no uh, flexibility in his rulings. He doesn't, you know, he says it and that's it. Moshe Isserlish lived uh, in a time when the Jews in Poland were in very good shape. Uh, they had autonomy. They were protected by the Polish kings. Uh, they had prosperity. They lived in their own neighborhood, Kazmir, which not only was a neighborhood, it was like a separate city. There were no non-Jews that lived there. It was a, you know, uh, they described it as a piece of Eretz soil that was planted in Krakow. And they lived their own independent lives. And they were quite successful in many, many of their endeavors. So he comes from a different set of experiences and from a different society. When uh, he also begins to write a commentary to the tour. His commentary is called Darke Moshe. Uh, after his name, Moshe Isserlish. As he is writing, and he himself uh, describes it almost autobiographically, he says, all of a sudden, he receives a copy of Rabbi Yosef Karo's interpret commentary to the tour, the Beis Yosef. He says, everything that I wanted to do, he did already. All of the work that I wanted to do to compile the ideas of all of the great scholars and put them in order of the, of the, of the tour was all done already. And therefore, he says, for a period of time, I was depressed. But then he said, I examined the Beis Yosef carefully and I see that there's room for me too. But the nature of the book changes. It no longer is a commentary on the tour as much as it is a basis for debate and discussion on the Beis Yosef. Now, Rabbi Yosef Karo said, I took the tour because it's nicely organized. The Ramah here raises a fundamental difference between him and Rabbi Yosef Karo. He said, Rabbi Yosef Karo deals with three great pillars of halacha who have been dead for centuries. Rabbi Yitzhak Alfasi, who died in the 11th century. The Rambam died in the 13th century. The Rosh died in the 14th century. We're in the 16th century. He says there's a rule that we have in the Talmud. Halacha kebatroi. The halacha is according to the later ones, not according to the earlier ones. That's based on the idea that the later ones knew or were aware now of everything that the earlier ones wrote about or decided 
and they took it all into consideration. And therefore, the halacha now is according to the opinion of the later ones. He said in his book, there are no later ones. Everything that has gone on for the last 250 years is omitted. And he said that's the basis of halacha is to know the later ones, not the earlier ones. To a great extent today we see that. I mean, no one, no Rav decides a matter according to the Rambam. He decides the matter not even according to the Shulchan Aruch. He decides the matter according to the Mishnah Brura or the Aruch HaShulchan. Or he decides it on the basis of Reb Moshe Feinstein's chuvas or Reb Shlomo Zalman's chuvas. We're always looking for the latest one. Again, under the logical assumption that the latter one knew everything that the former one wrote and took into consideration. And he says, here comes Reb Yosef Cairo, and he doesn't have anything to do with the latter ones. He's only deciding it according to the earlier ones. And then he raises a second point. He said he doesn't know anything about the Ashkenazim. He doesn't know our way of life. His definition of Ashkenazim is interesting. Anybody that speaks Yiddish. That's that's his definition of Ashkenazim. He said he's unaware of our way of life and he's unaware of our customs. He leaves no room for customs. And we'll discuss this a little more in detail later. And he says customs are an integral part of halacha. And uh, you have to see how people behave. What is the custom of the community? Now, the Ramah was a great defender of customs. If you look in his commentaries, he always says, this is our custom. And you can't change the custom. Even when he feels the custom is not so right. But he says that that's the way the Jews, he, his opinion is that the Jews are a holy nation. All rumors to the contrary and behavior to the contrary notwithstanding. And therefore, if that's what the Jews do, then there must, you know, must be that in heaven they agree like that. And therefore, you just can't wash away customs. Let me give you two examples. Uh, famous examples of the Ramah. Don't forget, he's much younger than, than everybody else, than the major rabbis at the time. His cousin is the marshal in Lublin, who's always on his back. The marshal writes him a letter. He says, you don't know Hebrew. He says, you make females males and males females. You can't get the gender right. He writes him back. He says, I'll try and do better next time. You know, like he is he's just Mr. Smooth. Nothing bothers him. They had a custom in Krakow that you won't tell anybody, all right? None of this affects us. They had a custom in Krakow that they would have weddings on Friday afternoon, which was a widespread custom in Jewish Eastern Europe, and here in Yerushalayim as well. And then the wedding, Seuda, was the Friday night Shabbat meal. 
where everybody brought their meal. And they had non-Jewish musicians play. To be Misamea Chosen Kala. Well, so you can imagine that uh, there were people who uh, didn't quite agree with that custom. It went through the roof. In fact, if you look in the Shilas and Shuvas Ramon and Simon Vov and Zion and Ches, the whole discussion between him and the Marshal, the Marshal goes ballistic. How can you allow it? What is with you? And he writes him back, you know, that's our custom and he should... It can be justified halachically and uh, leave them alone and, you know, and uh, why, why are you so bothered that Jews are having a good time and, you know, and because that was the custom. He even had a case where the, uh, there was a fight between the Mechutonim, if you can believe such a thing happens. And uh, they were arguing over the money so late that it was Shkia Friday already. Entered into Shabbos. And he performed the wedding ceremony on Shabbos. Because he said he didn't want to embarrass the bride. Because she had gone to the mikveh already and... Uh, because of the, the crowd was there and everything. So because he didn't want to embarrass the bride, he found a way uh, to say that the wedding is, uh, you know, you're allowed to make the Kenyan on Shabbos, and the rabbis didn't mean to answer it in such a case of emergency. Whammo. So again, you know, everybody wrote to him. See, but at that time, they didn't have newspapers. And, you know, they didn't have, uh, didn't have posters to put up on the street. And it was, you know, they, so these things could happen without, without uh, tremendous penalties, so to speak. And after all, he was the Ramon. The Beis Yosef, Yosef Kara doesn't take any of this into consideration. It's the halacha. Now the Ramah himself agrees that there are customs that should be abolished. But he always writes, Iyayasher Chayli, if I had the power, I would abolish it. But he's saying, I don't have the power. And therefore, let us let the Jewish people alone. So there's a major difference in halacha, is where is the place of custom in halacha? Do we have to take it into account? Or can we just say that some of the customs or many of the customs are not binding? And therefore we just, especially customs that are not mentioned in the Talmud, they're not mentioned amongst the earlier scholars, and the Rambam rarely mentions custom. The whole idea of saying Halil on Rosh Chodesh, and then the fact that we make a brocha on Halil, the Rambam, he doesn't have any of that. That's all a custom. 
But once the custom is established, so then that becomes how to do it. Now, Rabbi Yosef Karo attempted with the Shulchan Aruch to make it the central authority. And generally, the Svartim have that idea there's a central authority that governs halacha. And that that authority crosses all national boundaries, all cities, all towns, that's it. Like in our time, for instance, you know, Ravavadja, whatever Ravadja says, goes. And it doesn't just go here in Israel, it goes in, in France and in the United States and wherever it is. There's a central authority. But the Ashkenazim, again, who are you? The, the, the authority was every Rav in his own individual community, he is the authority, and he's not bound to anyone else. He's not bound to any other type of central authority to be placed upon him. Uh, we see in the Ramah a tremendous defense throughout of individual liberties, of the ability of a person to do. And the Ramah always says the same thing. He says, listen, uh, you know, uh, if you want to be machmir, you can be machmir for yourself. You can be strict for yourself, but you cannot be strict for the community. They're not bound to your strictures. In the uh, in Rabbi Yosef Karo, you don't even find the discussion of those ideas. This is the law. The law is the law is for everybody. The Ramah introduces to us a concept in halacha called hefsed meruba. Hefsed meruba. I mean, the, this is all. The Ramah wrote glosses to the Shulchan Aruch. I mean, he's the one that saved the Shulchan Aruch in the sense that he made it the book for all Jews. Because otherwise the Ashkenazim would have ignored it completely because they would have said it's a Sephardic book. So instead of writing another Shulchan Aruch for the Ashkenazim, he just interlined in the Shulchan Aruch of Rabbi Yosef Karo his comments which reflected Ashkenazic custom and psak. So that therefore, that he called it the Mapa. He called it the... The Shulchan Aruch was the set table. The Mapa, he called it the tablecloth. And in the Mapa, he introduces all of the Ashkenazic ideas, customs, and Piske Aloha. So that you only need one book, because the book has the Ashkenazic Shulchan Aruch and the Sephardic Shulchan Aruch in it. That really saved the book. That made the book universal, as it is today. It also allowed, it had a great contribution, because it allowed the Ashkenazim to study Sephardic opinion, because that was in the book. You had to see what he was commenting on. And it also allowed the Sephardim to take into account Ashkenazic opinion, because within 50 years, 
no Shulchan Aruch was printed without the Ramos interlineations being included. And the Svartim always write, Achenu uh, Ashkenazi Mayotzim Biyad Ramah. That they go out, so that's a play on words. The Jewish people leaving, leaving Egypt went out Biyad Ramah, so that's Reish Memhei. They went out with an upstretched hand, and here Biyad Ramah was Reish Mem Aleph. They go out with the hand of Ramosha Israelish. One of the things that he mentions, and he says it over and over again, is this concept of Hefzid Merubah. Now, he didn't invent the concept. The concept exists in Aloha from the beginning of time. But it never was expanded, delineated, and practically used. And the Ramad takes upon himself that when there is a question of Aloha, and the majority opinion is to be strict about it. But there is valid minority opinion. Not only that, the valid minority opinion may be the correct opinion, except it just doesn't want to adopt stricter standards. So the Ramos says that in a case of Hefzid Merubah, where there will be a substantial loss to the person involved, we will follow the lenient approach, even though if there's no Hefzid Maruba, we will follow the stricter approach. So that individualizes halacha. For instance, if, uh, well, there once were rich Jews, but, uh, but let's say there, there was a wealthy Jew, you know, Amol, and he comes and he says he's got this chicken and there's a shaila in the chicken. And uh, most of the chronim uh, say that we should take a strict opinion. So you know, the rabbi will tell him, you know, throw the chicken out. Give it to the pets. Give it to a non-Jew. Go out and buy another chicken. A poor widow will come in with the same chicken, the rabbi will tell her it's kosher. So people say, Rabbi, is it kosher or isn't it kosher? That's not how you deal with halacha. You deal with halacha, the person that's in front of you. For her, it's a hefzid maruba. For her, it's an enormous law. She doesn't have, she doesn't have another hundred shekel to go out and buy chickens. For the wealthy man, it's nothing. He also says, what if it's Erev Shabbos? And yeah, it's interesting, because one would think that Shabbos is the time that one should be strict. What if it's Erev Shabbos, and they, you know, and she comes with the chicken? And today, you know, we rabbis don't see it. I haven't seen a chicken, in, uh, I mean, a Shailan, a chicken, uh, in... Uh, decades. But in Miami Beach, I had a woman that came every Friday with a chicken. She had her every Friday, you know, and, you know, and I would take it seriously. You're not allowed to, uh, to take it lightly because sometimes I could be a real shyland. She'll never come if you treat her lightly. And my father, a blessed memory, I remember 
As a child growing up, there were 15, 20 women every Friday with chickens. Broken bone, there's a red spot, there's this, that. So the Ramos says if it's Erev Shabbos, then it's like Hefzid Marubo. We have to find a way out because where is she going to get another chicken for Shabbos? And then people won't have what to eat for Shabbos. There won't be a Shabbos meal. So we'll find that's, that's also. Then he adds another dimension. I mean, none of this appears in, in Rabbi Yosef Karim. He adds another dimension. What if you got guests coming? Let's raise the ante. Your mother-in-law is coming for supper. And this is the only chicken that you have. And there's undoubtedly a question regarding the chicken. So he says it's also permissible, right? We have some maruba, orchim, we'll see what to do. So that's a different approach completely. It's not the approach of the book, it's the approach of the person. So we have to see how that plays out. Now, the Ramon created uh, two great uh, leniencies in the laws of Trefus. You know, when, a, when an animal is uh, slaughtered, uh, so the Shochet uh, slaughters it perfectly with the correct knife. The knife has, uh, has no uh, rough edges to it. And he slits the trachea and the esophagus one blow, and everything is perfect. But then we make an autopsy on the animal. And there are many different types of problems that can render the meat not kosher. So most of the problems that are raised in the Talmud, the Talmud lists 36 categories. Most of them we don't search for because we go on the uh, presumption Rov behemos ksheros, most animals are, are kosher, and therefore we don't have to look for trouble. However, when it comes to the lungs of the animal, so then it's called the miutamotsui. You know, there's a rov, there's a majority, so there's a majority 70 to 30, so that's a majority. There's a majority 51 to 49. That 49 can't be dismissed anymore because it's a miyut hamotsui. It's a small minor, it's a minority that is just a bit smaller than the majority. And therefore we have to investigate every lung. Now the lungs of steers, cows, bulls, uh, almost always have some sort of lesion on the lung. And the Talmud teaches us, Rashi explains it, that there cannot be these lesions unless there is some puncture in the lung. And the lesion is created by the mucus escaping from the lung, which seals the hole. But once there was that hole, so a hole in the lung, punctured lung, renders an animal not kosher. Well, the animal's... uh, in the 16th century, were not raised uh, scientifically. They did not have antibiotics. Uh, they didn't have uh, the feed, etc. It's one of the ironies in our time 
is that we probably have the most kosher of uh, all of the uh, meat products ever in the history of the Jewish people. Not because of us, but simply because the technology is here. The knives today are far superior to any knives that ever existed before. Meshachtim is shecht with knives that are made of surgical stainless steel. And uh, the animals are, are healthy. But uh, in Europe, uh, in Eastern Europe, you know, the animals were older and the animals were sick. So when you made the autopsy, it was very hard to find animals that had clear lungs. And therefore, there was no meat. Now, you know, I don't want to be sociological about this, but amongst the Svardim, and it's written, they ate mainly goats, sheep. Beef was not a big item. Goats and sheep don't have the problem. They have different problems, but they don't have that problem. And uh, the Mechaber of Yosef Karo in the Shulchan Aruch uh, states clearly that if it has a problem in the lungs, it's gone. Straight. The Ramah came and said that if the Shochet with his fingers can rub the lesion in such a way that it falls off, and after it falls off, we will then inflate the lung and put it in a bucket of water, you know, like looking for a flat flat tire, you look for the puncture. And if it bubbles, then it's trace. But if it does not bubble, so then it's a sign there was no hole, and the animal is kosher. That's one of the great uh, new things that the Ramor created. Uh, and uh, the Ashkenazim have been eating from it ever since. Now, when we say today something is glot kosher, so glot kosher in meat products, I'm not, you know, they, they, you know, today it's stretched to such an extent there's glot kosher potato chips. I mean, that's, you know, that glot kosher fish. But glot kosher in meat products meant that it did not have lesions. And since that is such a small percentage of animals, in my years in the OU, it was about 18% that had no lesions. So uh, they said, well, there are small lesions that come off easy. Those that come off easy also pass for glot. Because otherwise the glot market could not supply, could not begin to supply the demand. So that's the Ramos uh, idea. Then there was a second thing. There were tumors in the lungs. And uh, the question was whether it was clear liquid emanated from the tumor or whether it was already uh, liquid that uh, had an odor to it that was uh, already uh, corrupted. Now, the Ramah is Mekel. 
whereas, again, in the Shulchan Aruch, we do not find that kula. We do not find that leniency. So, again, uh, that's the reason why uh, the Svardim don't eat Ashkenazic meat. That's why they eat Bet Yosef, as the name implies, because it has to meet the standards of Machaber. The Ashkenazim don't eat Svardic meat because of different reasons. But meanwhile, everybody's happy because we all have something that we don't eat. It's interesting that the Ramah, uh, even when he disagrees with the Beis Yosef, there's many, many times he says it, right? He's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong. But Lamasa, as a practical matter, we have to do what he says. Because he's such a great man. So even though I can't agree with his logic and everything, but I'm not willing to oppose him in a public and halachic manner. Now, the Ramah also, uh, in his time, was accused of being too lenient, and he was accused by others of being too strict, which is an unavoidable thing if a person accepts upon oneself the mantle of deciding halachic questions. Now, Ramon himself writes in one of the Chuvas that there are people whose tendency is to be strict. And therefore, he says, I have to take into account the tendency of that person when I look at his decision. JM in the AM, you're listening to the uh, brilliant lecture by Beryl Wine regarding the... Um Rav Yosef Karo and the Ramah from the series entitled Halachic Disputes or Disputations or those who are commonly, I would say, at odds with each other when it comes to halachic decisions. A, a very interesting lecture, to say the least. This lecture and all of Rabbi Wine's lectures are available at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. You can also go to uh, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And check out the the entire list of offerings. It's pretty amazing, frankly, and so I'm highly recommending it. And I know this audience is quite familiar with uh, Rabbi Wine's brilliance and um, how educated one can become just by listening to his lectures. JM and the AM, thanks for tuning in. It's uh, coming to the end of hour number one of our Friday broadcast. We do have our weekly update coming up. We also have my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which, which was originally delivered on the 3rd of Av. Back in uh, 1994, and today is the 3rd of Av, so we will have that incredible example of great oratory skills for you coming up in the 7 o'clock hour. Uh, I mentioned Malcolm Holmline. He'll join us. Harry Rothenberg after our newscast. Um, or by Uden, of course, in hour number 3 here at JM in the AM. It is Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim. It's Erev Shabbos Chazon. Tisha B'Av is this coming Wednesday night. And Thursday, candlelighting time for Erev Shabbos Chazon, 8.01 in New York. 8.01 in New York. Make sure you know when things start where you are. I do remind you that this coming Sunday, Rabbi Moshe Osman, the uh, chief rabbi of the Ukraine, who was with us earlier this week on the air, is going to be speaking at the uh, congregation Keter Torah. 
600 Romer Avenue in Teaneck, New Jersey, this coming Sunday beginning at 10.15. After his presentation will be a Q&A and an opportunity to ask questions about what the Jewish community of uh, the Ukraine is going through at this time. If you want to support Mitzvah for Ukraine, which is the uh, organization that the Office of the Chief Rabbi has founded in order to uh, help people with basic needs, food, medication, etc., and as we said earlier in the week, the more money they have, the more they, they are able to help. Officeofchiefrabbi.org. Officeofchiefrabbi.org. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web, and AlchemSegal.com, and the AlchemSegal Network, and of course, anybody beloved NSN app. Friday, Arab Shabbos, Parshas Dvarim, Shabbos Chazon. Tonight, Lachadodi sung in the tune of Elitzion. Tomorrow, the majority of the Haftorah. Some people will say the entire Haftorah, but the majority of the Haftorah sung to the tune of Eicha. We're getting ready for Tisha B'Av, and we're in our nine days spoken word format here at JM in the AM. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Friday. Erev Shabbos follows next. We say Boker Tov from JM in the AM. Galitzal, Shalom Rav, Baulpan, Iran Kurtim, בשעה זו מובאת למנוחות בבית העלמין הצבאי בקריאת שאול סרן לידר פרץ שנהרגה אתמול בבסיס צהלים בנגב. סרן לידר פרץ בת 21 מאור יהודה שירתה כקצינת לוגיסטיקה בחטיבה 7 של חיל השריון ונהרגה כשנמחצה ממקולה שנפלה עליה. צהל לקים צוות מומחים בראשות קצין בדרגת אלוף משנה לבדיקת נסיבות התאונה במקביל לחקירת המשטרה הצבאית. שוב התגרות בגבול לבנון, מספר חשודים התקרבו לגדר הגבול בין לבנון לישראל, אמס סמוך לקיבוץ יפתח, חשודים ידעו אבנים והציצו שרפות בשטח לבנון, מטרים ספורים משטח ישראל. כתבנו צבאי דורון קדוש מוסר שכוחות צהל וחיבוי והצלה היו פרוסים במרחב למניעת נזק בשטח ישראל ולהפרת הריבונות, בדובר צהל אישרו את הפרטים. אור סייר ויינר, סטודנט בן 25, הוא הגבר שנפצע קשה מאוד באירוע דקירה בירושלים אתמול. במערכת הביטחון מתחזק החשד כי מדובר בפיגוע. אור נדקר כ-20 פעם בכל חלקי גופו בפתח בית סבו וסבתו, ועל פי בני משפחתו לא היה מסוכסך עם איש. החשודים בדקירה נמלטו. גבר אחד נעצר בחשד למעורבות באירוע. מצבו של אור מוגדר כעת קשה מאוד ויצי ונשקפת סכנה לחייו. ידיעה שהעבירה כתבתנו בבירה, נועה ברנס. צעדת המחאה נגד התוכנית המשפטית ממשיכה בדרכה לירושלים בהשתתפות אלפים. הצועדים הגיעו לאנדרטת מחל הסמוכה למחלף שער הגיא בדרכם לירושלים. הצעדה שהתחילה בשלישי בלילה ברחוב קפלן בתל אביב צפויה להתחדש בשעה שלוש כשהצועדים יצאו מהאנדרטה לכיוון מושב שורש במטה יהודה. על פי התכנון מחר בצהריים יגיעו לבירה כשהיעד המרכזי שם הוא הכנסת. ראש המטה לביטחון לאומי צחי הנגבי הודיע בחשבון הטוויטר שלו כי אתמול בלילה נחתם רשמית מסמך הבנות בין ישראל לארצות הברית שיאפשר לישראל להתקבל בקרוב לתוכנית הפטור מאשרת כניסה לאמריקה. כתבנו יובל סגב מציין כי פרסומים אודות העסקה שצפויה להיחתם פורסמו באמצע השבוע, אך תרם פורסמה הודעה רשמית על החתימה. המלחמה באוקראינה. נשיא רוסיה ולדימיר פוטין אמר לפני שעה קלה כי חלקה המערבי של פולין 
הוא מתנה שהעניק סטלין לרוסיה. פוטין הוסיף ואמר, מנהיגי פולין מנסים לבנות קואליציה יחד עם מדינות נאטו ולהתערב במלחמה באוקראינה. עוד אמר, כל מתקפה על בלרוס תחשב כמתקפה על רוסיה עצמה. ידיעה שהעביר כתב חדשות החוץ ברק בטש. מזג האוויר, טמפרטורות ממשיכות להיות גבוהות מהרגיל לעונה עם עומסי חום כבדים ברוב חלקי הארץ. אלה החדשות. All right, let's go to the conclusion of Rabbi Wine's lecture on Rav Karo and uh, the Ramah in the um, series entitled A Difference of Opinion, Halachic Disputes in Jewish History. The truth is that there are people whose tendency is to be strict. And therefore he says, I have to take into account the tendency of that person when I look at his decision. Because if he has, so to speak, a predisposed tendency to be lenient or to be strict, so that certainly colors his opinion. And therefore, I have to look at it through that view. It's an interesting thing that it's a discussion. You'll notice in the Talmud that they always mention the names of the people that gave the opinion. Not only that, they'll say... Oh, he said it in the name of him, and he said it in the name of him. We have sometimes three, four sets of names that said the opinion. Who cares? We're interested in the content and the opinion. Who cares who said it? Because you have to know who said it. Because by knowing who said it, so then you know what the predisposition is. And therefore, that was always taken into account. There's an office to Rabbi Nossam uh, that says that if a person studies and does not review one study, then in a short period of time he will forget who said it. Then it says for a longer period of time he'll forget the contents, and then in a longer period of time he'll forget what subject he was learning, and in a longer period of time he won't remember that he ever learned. But the first thing is, he'll forget who said it. So again, who cares who said it? Why is that such a penalty? And the answer is again. Because by knowing who said it, uh, we are able somehow to take that into account as well. There are people who by nature are more lenient. So therefore, if they express a leniency on a certain complicated matter... I understand why they do it, but it doesn't mean that it is 100% objective because he's responding to his nature. And the same thing, there are people that are always more strict, that look at it in that fashion. And therefore, if he decides the matter and he says that it's not permitted, I have to take that into account as well because that's his nature. There are more rights. Regarding a relative of his, Rabbi Yosef Katz, you know, somebody said to him, how can you disagree with him? He's such a great Talmud Chochem, and he's your relative, etc. He writes, who tomid machmir. All that's his nature. His nature is to find the, that it's more strict. And therefore, I have to look at it and see, to decide by myself whether or not on an objective basis we can deal that way. It's such an opinion... 
such a viewpoint is not present at all with Rav Yosef Karo. Now, Rav Yosef Karo, uh, Jewish legend, there's a uh, famous uh, sefer, Magid uh, Meshorim, which is attributed to Rav Yosef Karo. There's, there are all sorts of different opinions, but it's attributed to him in which he records that he studied Torah in his dreams with an angel from heaven. And that certainly lent a uh, gravitas to his decisions. Verama never claimed that, but uh, almost it's it's not expressed explicitly, but hidden in the words that Verama is that uh, we really are not interested in what heaven has to say, or what the angels have to say. Uh, Torah is here, and we have to deal with Torah here. Last point I want to make is regarding the introduction of Kabbalah into Halacha. Both Rav Yosef Karo and the Ramah are great Kabbalists. Rav Yosef Karo writes at the beginning of the Beis Yosef that I will that I uses he uses the Sefer Azohar, the basic book of Kabbalah, as one of his sources in Halacha. So. Kabbalah enters Halacha. The Ramah also, but the Ramah enters it in the, on the basis of custom. He brings Kabbalistic customs which were widely accepted in his time by the Jewish people. So he says we will abide by these customs even though the customs are Kabbalistic in origin and not Halachic in origin. So, in reality, the two agree on more that they dis- than they disagree. But they're coming from two different directions. And they're coming from two different societies, from two different worlds, and from two different experiences. Together, they form the Shulchan Aruch, which is the basic book of Jewish Psak till today. All other later ones are based upon them. And uh, these two uh, giants, the, the uh, Rav Yosef Karo lived into his 80s. The Ramah was barely 40 when he died. Died in the cholera epidemic in Krakow. The legend regarding him is that he died, he was 33 years old, he died on Lagba Omer, and he wrote 33 books. That's the legend. But he probably lived to 40 or 42 and uh, we have many, many, we have 17, 18 of his books that we know of. And uh, there's the famous Ramah Synagogue in Krakow that's uh, still a tourist attraction. And he's buried in the cemetery in Krakow. But these two together are the giants that lead the Jewish people in the matter of Psach Halacha. This- what an unbelievable education we get. Every time from Rabbi Wine, just amazing. The series is entitled A Difference of Opinion, Halachic Disputes in Jewish History, 1-800-499-WEIN for information or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. We can't recommend his uh, lecture series uh, higher or more highly than we do. Can't recommend it enough. Harry Rothenberg's words about this week's parsha are... Uh, 
presented in honor of her Rafur Shlema for Ruchama Chana Etel Baschava, Ruchama Chana Etel Baschava. Harry Rothenberg, Parshas Dvarim on JM in the AM. When Moshe recounts the story of the spies in this week's Parsha, he adds a detail that we didn't get earlier in the Torah. He says that when the spies came back with the report, the men said, it's because God hates us that he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amori nation to destroy us. Now that is obviously ridiculous. What do you mean God hates us? God had brought the 10 plagues, taken them out of Egypt, split the sea, given them the Torah, given them the miraculous manna from heaven every day in the wilderness and the well from which they drank and the clouds that protected them and gave them perfect weather. He clearly loved them. He didn't hate them. What are they talking about? And the answer according to one commentator is this. The men of the generation who said those words were paranoid. They knew they'd committed certain infractions in Egypt and in the wilderness the golden calf, chief among them, and they were worried that God hated them and had it in for them. They were just waiting for the other shoe to drop. So when the majority of the spies came back with a bad report and said, hey, beautiful land, but we have no chance. There are giants there. The men said, we knew it. God hates us. It's a setup. We're going to go into the promised land. We're going to get slaughtered by the nations that are there. Our wives and children will survive. They didn't commit those infractions like us. So they'll inherit the land. They'll take it over because God is going to keep his promise that he made to the patriarchs, but not us because God hates us. Now they were wrong and they could not have been more wrong. God did not hate them despite their infractions and he doesn't hate us. When we do something wrong, we have to get up, dust ourselves off, get back on the horse, recognize we did something wrong, regret it, resolve not to do it again, beg at God for another chance which he'll give us because he loves us and move on. There's a lot of pain in this world. There's physical pain, health issues, family issues, financial issues, and when it happens to others, we have to be there for them, commiserate and support and help to the extent that we can with all of our emotion, our hearts and our resources. And when it happens to us, we have to remember, that came from God. He loves us. He didn't do something to us because he hates us. It was a message. It was a wake-up call. It was a love tap. It was meant to cause us to stop and think, take stock and take corrective action, or for some other reason that we don't know and may never know in all likelihood until we're up in heaven and God will let us in on what was going on. But we have to remember it came from Him and it came from a place of love, from a loving parent up in heaven, our Father in heaven. And if we could just remember that, maybe someday soon, maybe even by next week, We'll be able to turn Tisha B'Av instead of a national day of mourning and pain and horror into the holiday that it was always meant to be. Thank you, Harry Rothenberg. Harry's words uh, for in honor of Rafur Shlema for Ruchama Chana Etel Bas Chava. Ruchama Chana Etel Bas Chava. And uh, I thank him. Um, in just a moment, my father's Eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which was originally delivered on the Rebbe's Shloshim, the 3rd of Av, back in 1994. Uh, that's why we're doing it today, because today is the 3rd of Av. So Rabbi Zev Siegel on the life of the Lubavitcher Rebbe and the passing of the Lubavitcher Rebbe coming up in just a moment. I want to remind everybody that uh, this coming Sunday in Teaneck, New Jersey, at 10.15 in the morning, Rabbi Moshe Osman, the Ukrainian chief rabbi, is going to be speaking. There'll be an opportunity to hear from him, what's going on with the Jewish community of the Ukraine. Uh, support the cause um, so that he can continue to provide food, medicine, and basic essentials for those in tremendous need. 
by going to the following website, officeofchiefrabbi.org. Again, that's officeofchiefrabbi.org. Malcolm Holmline is going to join us, Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He'll join us coming up on uh, this broadcast about a half hour from now. Uh, next week, our spoken word uh, format continues here at JMNAM. Wednesday night is Tisha B'Av, which means Thursday. Uh, we will be here on Tisha B'Av, hoping to present a Kinnis service like we've done in the past during our uh, Tisha B'Av broadcast on Thursday. So that will be happening this coming Thursday morning here at JM in the AM. Um, trying to think what else I wanted to remind everybody about. Oh, candle lighting time at 8.01 on this uh, Erev Shabbos Chazon, Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim, 8.01 in New York. Make sure you know when things start where you are. No matter what city you might be in around the world, a lot of people begin Shabbos early uh, during these summer months. So again, make sure you know when things start where you are. And um, wishing everybody a peaceful Shabbos Chazon. And um, anticipating Bezrat Hashem, a wonderful Shabbos Nachamu next week for everybody. Rabbi Zev Siegel, uh, the uh, eulogy delivered on the 3rd of Av, 29 years ago, uh, on the Shloshim of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Here it is at JM in the AM. This coming uh, Shabbos, we shall read in the Torah the summation of Moshe Rabbeinu. And among the things that Moshe Rabbeinu says is, Echo Eso Levadi Torchachem Masachem Berifchem. Moshe Rabbeinu confesses that he doesn't know how he is able to carry the burden of leadership all by himself. And then he continues, so he decided there should be a leadership assisting him. And he says, the qualifications of leadership should be the following, and this is what the Torah tells us. Get yourselves men, chachomim, wise men, unevonim, understanding men, now you can't help but associate this statement of Moshe Rabbeinu where he designates the qualifications that there is a very strong relationship to Chabad. He says, Chachomim. Chochmo, Nevonim, Bino, Veyiduim, Das, and this is Chabad. 
the leadership of Claudius Roy was given to the rabbi. And he fulfilled that mission to the maximum that can be fulfilled. He had Claudius Yisrael, the entire people of Israel, was his concern. And a deep concern. Every corner in the world, no matter how forsaken it was, and no matter how few Jews were there, he had them on his mind, in his heart and his soul. If there was a man qualified to reconstruct Jewish life after the great Hurban, after the tragic Holocaust that befell our people, he was one man who did it. He reconstructed Jewish life in a very commendable way. And at the same time, he made Jews feel, without any exception, whoever they may have been, that they are a part of this reconstruction. He worried about every Jew wherever he was. And he had a certain devotion and dedication to Claudius Royal. I used to sit and I had the great privilege and I don't pretend that I understood the rabbi. I don't pretend that I can evaluate his scholarship or his spiritual greatness. But at the same time, in my own way, I was privileged to spend a great deal of time. It is no secret. Many of you know it. I used to come in 12 o'clock midnight and walk out not earlier than 3.30 in the morning and sometimes even later. And after a while when we were sitting, the bell used to ring. And I tried to get up because I knew there were people waiting there, people who were older than me. And as I was trying to get up, the Rebbe said in a tone almost of chastising me, he says, what are you, we are talking about the Klaal. Wir reden wegen Klaalsachen. And there was no disturbance when he was engaged 
in worrying about Klal Yisrael. And I can go on and on about his great concerns. Nothing else to point out except the Jewish community in the former Soviet Union. Where three generations of Jews were alienated from everything that had to do with Judaism. And the only underground movement that succeeded in existence during the Bolshevik regime was the Lubavitch movement. And I know for a fact, I can stand here for hours and testify how this underground movement functioned with real devotion and dedication to everything that had to do with Jews and Judaism. And the Rebbe was the leader. No matter how many thousands of miles he was away, they were waiting with a great deal of thirst to hear something from 770. was in Riga and Professor Branover was there and you probably heard of Professor Branover beside being a devoted Hasid a great scientist universally recognized a real Jewish leader respect from all walks of life in the state of Israel under every government and Professor Branover told us the following when Gorbachev came to power the Rebbe so people were very scared at the time and the Rebbe sent a message to the Jewish community in Russia and he told them, don't worry, things will get better. And naturally, they accepted the rabbi's word. And it calmed them down a little bit. But then Branover says, when Gorbachev was in Israel recently, and he spent quite some time with him, so he asked Gorbachev, did you really, when you came to power, did you really think that you are going to change from your predecessors? And Gorbachev said, no, not at all. In fact, my idea was to tighten a little stronger than my predecessors. Gorbachev didn't know where he's heading to, but the Rebbe had enough insight to predict that things will improve. And I can testify it from another angle. 
You remember when the El Al plane was hijacked to Algiers? And the rumor was that Ariel Sharon was to be on this plane and he was told by the Rebbe that he should not travel with that plane. That was the rumor. When I met next with the Rebbe, so a little time passed, and I was curious, and I said to him, I hear rumors that you stopped Sharon from traveling down that El Al plane that was hijacked to Algeria. And the rabbi said the following. He made sure that he did not accept when I said he stopped the plane. And he said, you know, Sharon came to say goodbye to me before he went to Israel. And I said to him, don't go. And Sharon didn't go. Says it's true. So naturally, obviously, I ask the next question. If you knew that the plane will be hijacked, why only save Sharon? You could have saved everyone else on that plane. And the rabbi gave me a look like I interpreted that it was not the wisest question that I have asked him. <laughs> and he says to me the following, he, says, he said it in Yiddish, do you think that I saw a plane being hijacked? He came to say goodbye, and all I did was say, don't go. For me, this was testimony of a certain insight that very rare human beings possess that insight. And this is what Braunover meant. And this insight was used to reconstruct Jewish life in the world again. A great deal was said about the Rebbe's involvement in Eretz Yisrael. I knew many, many leaders in Jewish life, Zionists and non-Zionists. I had the privilege to be the youngest delegate. Believe it or not, I was young once the youngest delegate to the last Zionist Congress before the establishment of the Jewish state in Basel. And I sat on very important committees. And I saw leaders as well in the Torah world as well. But every one of them had a certain area of knowledge and insight one may have been politically, diplomatically, 
well-versed. Or one may have been involved in the economics. Or one may have been involved in science. Or in military affairs. But the rabbi had them all. And I can again say it from personal experience. The hours that I listened and discussed of every conceivable phase in the life of Eretz Yisrael. Not only education, not only the practice of Torah, but every conceivable phase of life in Eretz Yisrael. And I don't have to tell you his concern about the Shlemus of Eretz Yisrael. That was on his agenda. And in the last few years, he had something to worry about, as we see it now. We talk about outreach a great deal. There are many, many who are occupied with outreach, and God forbid for me to minimize it. I know what it is. I was a little involved with it. But the outreach of Lubavitch is second to none. The devotion and dedication and the misiras nefesh of the shlichim in all parts of the world. I was sitting a short three weeks ago, a Friday night, who is now acting as the chief rabbi of Latvia. And you know the days are very long now in that part of the world. And I heard the Friday night the devotion, the discipline. Nothing was difficult. And if there is Jewish life today in Riga, it is this chief rabbi who could have stayed in Kfar Chabad with his family. Instead, he's suffering in Riga. Or a young man, many of you may know Glossman, a wife, a young wife with three infants, doing youth work in every possible way. He's running now a summer camp. And I don't have to tell you, I, want, I had occasion to, a couple of years ago when I spoke for a group 
who was involved with Lubavitch, to tell you about someone who was very, very active here, Rabbi Raskin, who is in Casablanca for many, many years. And I saw him there in 68, also with infants. And when I went down from his apartment about one o'clock at night on a Friday night, and I say to him, excuse me for keeping you so late. So he says, what do you mean, excuse me? First of all, you are the first one who is here, who was there. There in Morocco in those days, there meant Israel. That's number one. So we heard what's doing. And secondly, he says, let my children know that there is, there is a Jew in the world who speaks Yiddish too. I can tell you many stories, but my time is limited. I can tell you what the Rebbe did in South Africa when I was there in the 70s, when the Jewish community was in a turmoil, and the Rebbe calmed them down. And the shlichim there did their job. If there is a seder in Himalaya, who does it? If a shochet was needed in Romania, who supplied it? If a mohel was needed in any part of the world, they were there. And they are still there. Yes, indeed. Outreach to its maximum. All part of the reconstruction of Jewish life. Tremendous amount of creativity. You remember when the rabbi started with the Mifzat feeling in the Six-Day War? And feeling was not the most popular thing on the American scene. It was popular maybe on the day of Bar Mitzvah or a month before the Bar Mitzvah. But I have noticed what film did. When you come to the Kotel, to the Western Wall, A religious Jew has no problem. Either he dams Minche or Mayriv or Shachris. And if he comes in another part of the day, he says, feeling, he reads the Psalms. But what does a non-religious Jew do at the Kotel? What does he do? Another piece of paper on the wall. But feeling became synonymous with the kotel of the non-committed Jew. He comes to the kotel, he knows that this is the time to put on feeling and say Shema Yisrael. Or all the other projects 
the lighting of candles. Another creativity. The Rebbe was the first one on the American Jewish scene who did not permit Jews to run away from Jewish neighborhoods. But as it was said at the same time, the Rebbe never forgot the individual. And I want to share with you one of the experiences I had, which I must confess to you marked the rest of my life, particularly in the last few years. It was a great help to me. On one of my travels, and until this day, I don't know how the rabbit discovered that I'm going somewhere. I was called, and the rabbi asked me to do something in that particular country. I came back, so I gave him a report, and again, with lack of wisdom, I say to him, I conversed in Yiddish, I said, the Rebbe soll wissen, as is nicht gewenk in geringe Sach. Sie sind gekommen sehr schwer. I said, the Rebbe should know that this was not easy, an easy task for me. It was very difficult. And again, the Rebbe looks at me and makes me aware how uh, unwise I am, to put it mildly. And he says to me, Alav Segal, Zint ven, otir gemacht a contract mit nuribene shalailom for a gringen leben. The rabbi says to me, since when did you make a contract with the Almighty for an easy life? And as I said, among many, many things, this has become a guide in my own life. Yes, indeed, my friends, there is a great deal to be said and a great deal will be said because in all this there is immortality. The Rebbe was not only the Manig Hador, he will be the Manig Hadoros. Many, many generations will benefit from what the Rebbe was for the people of Israel. And I know, I'm as sure as I can be,
that right now, as he stands before the Kisei HaKovod, he is doing everything he possibly can to bring about our Geulo Shleimo B'Mehero Omein. J.M. in the A.M. That is uh, a tradition for us on the third day of Av. Uh, we uh, present my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which was delivered on the third day of Av on the Shloshim of the Rebbe back in 1994. Wow, almost 30 years ago. And it gives me an opportunity to honor my father's memory. Many people have discovered how great an orator he was through that uh, piece. And, of course, uh, to get an amazing perspective um, regarding the biography of, uh, arguably, maybe not arguably, uh, the greatest Jewish leader uh, of the 20th century, and that, of course, being the Lubavitcher Rebbe. J.M. and the A.M., here we are on a Friday morning, Erev Shabbos Chazon, Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim, candle lighting at 8.01 in New York. Make sure you know when things start where you are. Um, tonight is uh, Shabbos Chazon, as we said. Wednesday night is Tisha B'Av. Thursday is Tisha B'Av. Our friends at JewishWorldReview.com is a great resource if you're looking to uh, print out thousands of articles before Shabbos to become more and more educated about Israel and the Jewish world. Go to JewishWorldReview.com. Do just that and enjoy. Malcolm Holmline is Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays for the weekly update at JM and the AM. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. Good to be with you again. Appreciate that very much. Quite a week it's been, and uh, there's so much to cover. It's pretty amazing. Uh, give us your reaction, your overview of the speech delivered in Washington by the president of the state of Israel. Well, I had the privilege to be there and to attend the events and to hear him again yesterday in New York, where he was a guest uh, uh, and spoke in the afternoon and he's here actually for Shabbat too, uh, I thought it was carefully crafted. It touched many points, some sensitive. Uh, the response of the members of Congress was really quite remarkable, given that they, all of the focus is on the few who decided to, quote, boycott, and it was very few. Uh, Senator Sanders amongst them, which was uh, quite surprising because uh, he hadn't said it in advance. But the, uh, you know, and then the usual suspects. But the overall, the response was repeated ovations. It wasn't easy sitting there and having to stand up every other minute and, and uh, <laughs> getting up and down. But it was, uh, I think, a genuine response. There were people who stood up and didn't applaud. There were people who sat and applauded. Uh, so you can't just judge by what the pictorial presentations were. But in the substance, he was very tough on Iran. I think he deftly handed, handled the question of intervention in Israeli domestic sub, um, and even his reference to comparing it to the United States, uh, some of the struggles we have here. Uh, overall, I thought it was um, it was well done, well received, uh, and I met with a lot of members afterwards, and they were very positive about it by the way you'll enjoy you'll enjoy the fact that someone contacted me from israel and asked me to explain 
what the story is with everybody getting up and applauding every five seconds. <laughs> I was I was only able to attribute it to American shtick. I didn't have a better explanation, frankly, uh, because they you know what is in this, and I've been at every. I was even at his father's speech and helped arrange it 50, uh, 35 years ago. And, uh, and people did not do it quite as much then, but it, it, I think that people wanted to have an opportunity to show that the U.S.-Israel relationship is strong, to, to be responsive to it. And all it takes is for two or three people to start applauding and everybody then applauds. Well, and one yeah. person stands up and everybody else follows. It's not... Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I hope you're right. I really do think that anything of any substance that leans toward any side that's said in, said in that room these days uh, gets a standing ovation. But the, hopefully you're right that it really was a sincere attempt to demonstrate as much as possible. And but, but it was bipartisan. There were a couple points where people didn't stand. A lot of Republicans didn't stand after the LGBTQ reference. Uh, there were some of the Democrats who didn't applaud at the, uh, or some of them, but a, a minority, I would say, who didn't applaud at other points. But by and large, the response was both bipartisan. And I, uh, afterwards, McCarthy, the speaker, gave a small reception, and Hakeem Jeffries came, and the other, many other Democrats. Nancy Pelosi came. Um, and uh, the spirit was a very good one. And, and, you know, for a long time, that has not been the case because everything is about tension and, and partisanship and the, the question of Netanyahu's invitation and all those things overlay, let alone the uh, demonstrations in Israel uh, that became fodder here. Yeah, a so, lot of the things he said, I, 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 a lot of the things he said, I thought were really meant for those listening in Israel, frankly. Uh, as he was going through the, you know, the, the the list of different things happening at the same time in Israel, including the parade, etc., I thought that was meant more for Israelis, frankly, because there's you know such a terrible air of divisiveness right now in Israel, and he's searching for anything to try to unite the country. So maybe that was really either meant for over there, or maybe for both sides of the world. Who knows? I think what's meant for a lot of the dissidents in the Democratic Party and for some of the others who've been critics in the Republican and Democratic parties. Uh, where he was emphasizing the message that Israel's democracy is sound. And as you know, the, the, even the administration has made comments, uh, many members have made comments over time about the, the endangering Israel's democracy, and I think he, he was addressing them. I did not, and o- often you are right, that is the case that it's meant for the domestic audience. I think in this case it was really meant for, for to heal some of the wounds and to address members of Congress's doubts. Yeah, as I posted on social media, his whole broken glass at the wedding thing, I think, went completely over the head of anybody sitting in that room. And I think, <laughs> and I, and I think it was really meant more for you know a reminder to Israelis that you know we're in a certain period of time right now, uh, you know, literally days before Tisha B'av, that you know we, we need to stop for a moment and look at what's happening in our country. Uh, and I thought well, that, as dramatic as that sounds, I thought that that message was really meant for them as opposed to the people here. I mean, that could be, but but did you see that when he said, I'm Yisrael Chai, they didn't translate. Yeah, I know, which is really, I'll tell you, you yeah. know, it's one, thing that, it's, it's, it's one thing that so many Yiddishisms and so many Hebrew words have become, you know, so common in the American vernacular, but my gosh, now we're up to phrases and quotes. That's pretty amazing. It was, uh, it was surprising because they all 
jumped up immediately and started cheering. I'm yeah, when, I, the, when, when the history books when the history books are written and people are are, are are finding it hard to believe the support that there was in the United States for Israel, that'll be a good example, by the way, <laughs> how the most powerful people in the American government uh, knew the expression already. And by the way, I mean uh, not to not to uh, minimize the support, the vote that took place this week, four hundred and twelve to nine. I mean, you've seen this a million times before, but we can't minimize that. That is a great demonstration. By the way, aside from Sanders, and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, I just I, I don't know, and you may not know. Aside from Sanders, any other member of the Senate that boycotted, or was he the only one that you know that actually boycotted the speech? He's the only one who indicated uh, that uh, and, and made it known that he wasn't there. Uh, I mean, I'm sure we will get you know full tallies, but it's very hard to tell. And I was seated in a good position; I could see everybody from the back and see. You know, seats were not, and there weren't many empty seats. There were a couple, but not many. And uh, and there could be other reasons, you know, that somebody wasn't there. Oh, yeah, that I get. But the it would only be, one who declared it was that, that I know of was, was um, Sanders, but um, there may be others. Right. Um, just to, a couple other notes. The, first of all, brilliant, brilliant poetry, in my opinion. The two grandsons of Truman and Herzog being in the same room. I, I posted that as well. I thought that was whoever thought of that was brilliant, <laughs> in my opinion. That was a really good get. And I'll tell you, bringing the mother, bringing the mother of Hadar Golden. I mean, that that's a big kolakavod. I mean, the president of Israel could continue, like many others, to ignore the whole issue of POWs, MIAs, etc. And, and he brought her to Washington. And, you know, again, I don't know if he gets all the credit for that. I'm sure there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. But, boy, to keep that at the forefront and use uh, you know, the opportunity to mention him and his colleagues, his comrades, fellow comrades, in the speech I thought was brilliant. It was. Uh, by the way, it's been done before, and, and he has done this uh, very often. Even in some of the gatherings we've had with him in Israel, he will, he will have them there or make reference to them. Uh, I think it's something he takes very seriously, but so does Netanyahu, so do others. It's a uh, it's it's a national cause, and her presence there, of course, was uh, was especially meaningful. All right, now I don't I I understand when Jewish organizations, uh, you know, thank those members of the United States Congress that actually went to the speech. I mean, some people were arguing with me that you know. This is what should be expected from them. They don't need thank yous. But okay, you and I always agree that acknowledging someone and thanking them, you know, it can't be uh, overlooked and, and, and needs to be implemented. But what about the, on the other side? Should there be greater reaction from Jewish leadership, especially locally, when we have a couple of members of our house? I'm speaking now from the, I'm in one of my New York studios today, so I have that hat on. <laughs> when we have a couple of members of the New York State delegation that are making a big deal about boycotting this speech and doing so with, uh, uh, you know, with great exuberance, making public statements with great flair. I, I mean, should what what do we do? Do we ignore it? Because very t very often we've had this discussion. Often leadership will say, you know, if you give it more attention, it's a big problem. Or should there really be an outcry where we're demanding of constituents in those districts and others in New York to be calling their office and inundating them with how outraged we are? I don't think that they would particularly, those individuals would uh, largely care about the reaction. Uh, but uh, the, the answer is, yes, there should be action taken. And that is when you go to the voting booth and if the people in those districts would have paid attention, uh, AOC certainly would not have been elected had the Jewish community in Queens really turned out. 
in the original election. Now she has ingratiated herself with a, a larger base of uh, people hostile to Israel and, and even voting on anti-Semitism and sometimes crossing the line. Uh, the uh, Bomar used to have Riverdale, now he doesn't, but, but we didn't see the kind of uh, voting that Elliot Engel you know, was the congressman there and yep. lost to, to this know-nothing uh, hostile figure. Uh, so the answer is we have to support people who, who will run against them. If you remember with Omar, came within a, a hairbreadth of being defeated in right. the last elections. So, yes, the answer is we should keep the focus on them. I don't, I don't believe in building them up. I hardly ever reference them because they thrive on the, on the attacks on them. And then they raise more and more money, and I somehow got on the mailing list of uh, one or two of them, which I kept because I wanted to see what they're doing. And they raise huge amounts of money, both themselves and then to pay off other members of Congress. Or And I'm sure they're getting, uh, you know, if we were to investigate, I think that the, some of the sources would be questionable. But uh, the answer is they, they should be they, they should pay at the ballot box, and people should not excuse them and shouldn't be inviting them. And you'd see that dialogue with certain people doesn't produce anything positive. Yeah, and, that, and, it's, and that's what's so disturbing. And this district where I am sitting right now is a perfect example. We had leadership in Washington that, you know, never voted the way we would prefer when it came to international issues, when it came to foreign policy. But at least you were able to walk into their office and sit down, have a respectful conversation, and they would, and they would even consult with members of the community before deciding on a vote, even if that vote didn't go, you know, the way we would have preferred. And and it looks like when it comes to these characters, and I'll refer to them that way since we're not giving them real attention by mentioning their names. When it comes to these characters, they have no interest in real dialogue, or, and and at least you know giving the respect to community leaders to come and voice their opinion. Absolutely, and that's there are people with whom a dialogue is worthwhile, even if we disagree. Right, because you educate, you see yeah. some. And in the long run, you never know what it's may the happen. Exact opposite. And when certain extremist organizations, even in our community, seem to to bypass and to echo sometimes those sentiments, they have to understand the damage that they are doing. Yeah. (laughs) Not just for the short term, for the long term. Did you get the feeling sitting in Washington? I I don't I really don't want to, you know, pan the prime minister because I think he's been dealt with unfairly uh, by the United States government at this point. But did you get the feeling that it was a good choice? that the president of Israel was there, that his voice, not just because he has a calmer voice than the prime minister, but having him there and having him make the presentation was able to uh, go a long way in calming down whatever tension there is between Washington and Jerusalem? Well, I think his remarks uh, really were aimed to do that. Uh, I don't think, I think on the Republican side, they still were uh, continuing the criticism. But, you know, the invitation or so-called, whether what it amounts to, we don't know yet when it'll be a official meeting in the White House or the sidelines of the UN, which I think would be unfortunate uh, because then that will become again fodder for, you know, criticism and all sorts of things. Uh, Meaning September so, UN? The September UN. Wow, but, I didn't realize uh, that was an option. I thought this was a real invitation from Biden to Netanyahu. Well, there was an invitation, and he would, they would consider that an invitation right. if he had a meeting with him and 
the two of them got together. But I think for the optics of it, it really should be done in Washington directly, the two of them, and have a chance. And they know each other for, for decades. So, you know, it's it's not two strangers uh, meeting. I think it's, it's uh, you know, that that issue lingered. I heard interviews and other things being done there on Capitol Hill where the question kept getting it, it it did blunt it a little bit, it, and the, but I think it stands on its own in view of the of the way that he addressed the Congress and, and the issues that he raised and saying that you know denying Israel's right to exist is anti-Semitism and getting the kind of response that that got you know for for some of the people who were not there and even some who were there they uh, it was an important message. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at MalcolmSiegel.com and the MalcolmSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app, Malcolm Honline, Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents, Major American Jewish Organizations. After last uh, Shabbos' episode, what do you know today about the health of the Prime Minister of Israel? Uh, well, we pray for him. I hope in every shul they'll, they'll make him a shabarach when they talk for the people who are sick or include him. But uh, uh, let's just hope that there isn't more to it. The fact that I put a monitor there would argue against that it being simple dehydration. And, you know, there have been several episodes, one that I witnessed myself on uh, last Yom Kippur, but there he was fasting and, again, dehydrated. Uh, so let's hope that that's the case. Did he have a relatively normal work week since then? Like, did he make appearances and stuff? No, he was supposed to appear at the Christians United for Israel, which was this week and the most exciting event of the Jewish calendar. <laughs> when 5,000 Christians who get together from all 50 states and I had the privilege to address them, uh, even though it was distorted a little bit what I said, but um, uh, it, it's... The, the, the love and the compassion and uh, the passion for Israel, I, I'm telling you, is unequaled. I don't see it in any Jewish audience. The way they cheered the, their excitement and, and members of Congress uh, were there, mostly Republicans, Nikki uh, Haley, Vice President Pence, many others came, uh, the Governor DeSantis. But the, the, you know, the contrast of that together today with the lackluster mood in generally in Washington and these guys go to the hill and lobby their congressmen believe me they take no prisoners when they do it they are very adamant and uh, defined in their in their uh, goal and Pastor Hagee and Mrs. Hagee they've got over 10 million members they sign a hundred thousand members a month now and it's it's truly uh, amazing to see that the the gathering and the and the salt of the earth people who, who come to it who uh, the mass majority are always first-timers because they have to save in order to afford the trip and the hotels and all the expenses attendant to it. And then they give very generously. They tithe, in, in, and a lot of it, uh, he gives millions and millions of dollars of support without conditions, without strings. There's no missionizing at all of, uh, of any kind connected with the uh, Kufai. So when people are down, know we have tens of millions of friends in America. The vote, you know, condemning uh, Congresswoman Jayapal, the the fact that you had a 410 to 9 vote uh, should tell people that the situation isn't so bleak, and we still there are a lot of friends. The problem is all the attention goes to the to the bad guys. Yeah, it's funny. First of all, it's funny that you have to get your. Insp- I mean, it's sad, not funny, 
that to get inspiration about Israel, you know, you have to go to the Kufi conference instead of instead of depending on our own people for the inspiration. But that's that's a whole separate topic for another show. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned about the vote because some some young people said to me yesterday that you know despite everything going on, look at this vote. Look, and, I, and I, of course, you know, at this age, I take it for granted that every time there's a vote on Israel in Congress, you're going to get massive numbers like this. But it's true, um, and especially for those not used to it on the younger end, uh, it is significant. It is significant. So you're talking about leadership in this country, government leadership that's uh, uh, t- taking a stand and making a statement uh, by voting pro-Israel in this case, four twelve to nine, which is. Uh, not to be overlooked. And again, sometimes you, know, you get to a point where you're so used to it, you don't appreciate it. Maybe that's where we're heading. Maybe that's why the Christians United for Israel are more enthusiastic about Israel, because we've gotten so used to it and are taking it more for granted. For them, as you just described, for many of them, it's a first-time experience, a first-time adventure into being inspired by Israel. Just a thought. Yeah. No, it's, it's more than a thought. I think that, and we've talked about this many times, about what, you know, how much do we appreciate the miracle of Israel? We know the criticism. Everybody gets into the internal politics, and everybody knows better what the prime minister should do and everybody else should do. Uh, we, we do respond to the double standards and the hostility to the U.N., you, other places. But here you got $500 million for Israel's missile defense. In addition, the president and, and uh, of Israel and I think vice president announced the um, – a joint five-year initiative for uh, each side giving $35 million to support climate-smart agriculture and innovation and how much uh, other uh, things are uh, are added. And now we also have the first steps on the U.S. waiver visa waiver for Israel, right. which would make it easier for Israelis but also Palestinian-Americans, and that's to test how Israel's security can handle uh, handle that, but that is something the Prime Minister has set as a priority. It affects uh, business people and their ability to travel back and forth and to uh, do trade or affects families. Uh, so the, the, um, that's another important issue that's, that's on the table. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you see that many members, uh, you know, 50, 60 members, uh, called on the President to negotiate an end to the pay for slay. There's just so much stuff that goes on day to day. And as you said, it's not something especially young people are aware of. No, you're making a very, very important point. And this is certainly the time of year to remember this point, uh, a time of year where we mourn what the enemy did to us. Um, All right, so a couple of really important things that, uh, you know, we talk about enthusiasm, reaction. We talk about, um, you know, passion. I, I pick up, or actually I log on, to the New York Times website and see the story about protesters in Baghdad storming the Swedish embassy. Now, this is in response uh, to the anger over the Quran burnings in Sweden. Now, you are aware of the fact that there was approval. It didn't end up happening, but there was approval by the Swedish government that those who want to protest in front of the Israeli embassy and burn a Torah had permission to do so. Now, I assumed, and by the way, if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. I assumed that when this thing was voted on or the policy was announced and it looked like it was actually going to happen, I assumed thousands of people from Israel, the United States, other parts of the world, and certainly from Northern Europe 
would head to Sweden and have some type of Torah celebration in front of the Israeli embassy to at least call attention to how outrageous this is that the government allowed for its approval. And I don't think there was any outside of the typical paper reaction from the government of Israel. I get that. I don't think there was any passionate reaction. And I'm not calling that we have to go protest and storm Swedish embassies. I'm not saying it has to be exactly what our cousins do in this situation. But wouldn't you have expected some more passion and reaction to this? There were interventions, and I think they did it quietly not to make it a bigger political divide. Um, you know, Swedish-Israel relations are very complicated as it is. But I, I honestly did not believe he ever intended to do it. I, uh, and the fact that he included a Christian Bible with a safe Torah, there was no evidence he had a safe Torah. Um, that uh, I did not believe he was going to do it. Uh, and I think that this was, there was outrage expressed, there were demonstrations in Sweden. And I think the, um, there were other statements by some European leaders. But I think people, but the, there was no reaction when he burnt the Quran, which he actually did when the Quran was burnt. Well, you have people in Tehran who are, who are storming the Swedish embassy, at least. No, but you also, and you had, you had limited demonstrations in uh, other parts of Europe by Muslims, but you didn't see an outrage. And I frankly think that Israeli officials should have been should have come out and condemned the burning of the Quran, that Jewish leaders everywhere should have uh, condemned the burning of the Quran, because it was inevitable that it would then be used as an excuse to, to try and do it to us, to... to uh, perhaps to other religious groups. 25, and, and 25 a, years ago, 25 years ago, the Orthodox religious community in this country, I'm talking about religious leaders, you know, in New York and New Jersey, would have been calling for a demonstration outside of the Swedish embassy in New York. It could well be. And there was no reaction. And by the way, you know, we always condemn religious leaders for not reacting with their constituents to political um, absurdities. Here's an opportunity to, you know, here's an opportunity to, to react to something that's, you know, a, a, a blasphemous religious act. But I agree with that. I agree, but I agree that it should have been done with the burning of the Quran. I believe it should be done. But once you allow that standard to be broken and that religious symbols and the whole text get burnt and are, are disregarded in this way, we, we know what book burnings in the past have yeah. done to us and, and to others. You're right. And the Torah, and I would, I would extend that to the Quran. They're not flags. These are not, you know, political symbols. These are, these are religious That's symbols right. that are at the, at the, at the core of, uh, of a people's observance. Um, all right. So now, of course, the issue. Of, first of all, does every day of resistance in Israel turn into a week of resistance or a month of resistance? Like when they call for a day of resistance, did they ever, did they ever leave it at just a day? Well, I think that they. You know, different people have different interests in this. There are people who are genuinely uh, opposed to this, and you know, it's, there are debatable issues here. Uh, but it became a political football, and the opposition saw this. Uh, people in the opposition saw it as a way to gain strength, and clearly the numbers show it. Uh, and therefore, this incentivizes any kind of negotiations. Netanyahu made another emotional appeal last night for for it to to resolve it, but to defended his position. Uh, there comes a point where I think he can't give in without risking his own internal coalition. And they have whittled it down to this one proposal. And now uh, we'll see what he actually proposes on it. Uh, but the 
what, what happens with the vote, rather. Right, and that'll take so, away a drop of power from the Supreme Court, right? That's essentially the way it's being described. Yeah, some, but it's one. It's a right. small part of it. Right. And, and the fact is that the, the issue was one that the left had raised all the time, often about the, the, the role of the court and, and its, uh, um, you know, the exploitation of it. But of its role and and becoming more powerful, dictating to itself what what it wants to do, and I think that the the um, but the reaction is is a sustained one. I still think that the the guys sponsoring this are the manufacturers of flags because <laughs> they're, everywhere, they're everywhere, even outside of the, of President Herzog's speech on Park Avenue, in the you know the island in the middle of Park Avenue. As I approached, I saw this big uh, blurring of uh, Israeli flags. <laughs> so no, regardless of the rhetoric they use, it's still a demonstration of support for the state. I think the yeah. action of the reservists is very worrisome. Yeah. And, and uh, other strikes, uh, you know, when, when ambulances couldn't get through places or when uh, at the airport uh, people, it was this, very disruptive of the flow of travelers. You know, there have to be some limits. And the the you know this can't become the substitute for an election outcome, uh, and then every issue could be subject to this, and everything in the future could be subject to this kind of thing. I think it's remarkable how sustained it is over such a long period of time. Yeah, the media certainly hypes it, and for them it was a great story. But now after twenty eight, twenty nine weeks, thirty weeks, whatever, it's uh you know it's our, it, 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 that they can continue it is remarkable. I I, I would be interesting to see what happens. After the vote, uh, maybe the vote will cause some type of resolution between the sides and bring us more peace. Uh, Netanyahu and Abbas both going to Turkey. Uh, explain. Yes, I think uh, this is something the prime minister wanted. He's he's uh, he's going to Turkey on next Friday, uh, I think, for a day. As as far as I know now, it's surprising to go to a Muslim country on a Friday, oh, yeah. but it's something they've both agreed to and he it, it's symbolic it does show some change turkey is a very important player uh erdogan is very mercurial but this was this is an important gesture uh and supposedly he has contained the hamas operatives in in on turkish soil it's taken some other steps and remember all along just even in the toughest of times in the relationship trade between the turkey and israel never went down it keeps going up and you see the number of flights, 11, 12, 13 flights a day between Turkey and Israel. And the um, uh, so this is it's important. It's important in the actions against Iran. Now, Turkey has a lot of uh, agendas. One is Syria, where it still fights the PKK and where, you know, the relationship with Israel is important, especially as we believe Iran and Russia are trying to get them out as well. Uh, they would like to get each other out too, but the, the you know uh, Erdogan uh, is, remains a Muslim Brotherhood enthusiast and supporter. But if we if building the ties, invest getting greater investment, the, the a Turkish economy is in ruins right now. Their currency has fallen very sharply. So I think they look to trade and other things with Israel right now as being beneficial, and he wants to be a player in. Some of the regional arrangements, like the Mediterranean Initiative and the, uh, greater efforts to to expand the Abraham Accords, because he even called me at home to tell me at Erdogan, and 
I told him the things that he had to do, including stopping funding of the demonstrations on the Temple Mount, uh, which has been traced to Turkish uh, sources, direct or indirect. And I think the, so this is a very important visit. I think he, the prime minister, uh, will also visit Morocco. He was invited, and that's a very important, you know, it's the substance, but also the symbolism of these visits that matter greatly. That followed Israel's recognition of the Western Sahara as Moroccan territory. I hope he uh, takes your advice seriously. Um, finally, uh, we only got about a minute, but finally, because everyone's uh, begging me to ask you, uh, RFK Jr. says that COVID was targeted to certain ethnicities. Your reaction? I, I think you should check the, the statistics on what happened in, in, in the Ashkenazi communities here and the and, uh, you know, it seems that he has a predilection to, to, to conspiracy theories. It's very disturbing that, that he could mouth it, and whether he considered it a hostile comment or not, the fact is that it, it buys into conspiracy theories that are linked to anti-Israel, anti-Jewish uh, elements, and uh, it is disturbing. It's, it, he, you know, he attracted a lot of support initially, and he still attracts some supporters and alternate to I guess President Biden and, and to some debate within and, and creating some debate within the Democratic Party. Uh, does it expose vulnerability to the president, perhaps? But I think he did himself a lot of damage, and I'm not sure it's recoverable. Uh, Malcolm, I thank you. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak again next week. God willing, be well, and everybody should have an easy time. Yes. Let's hope that this is the end of the suffering and uh, to Shem, the Gula will come soon. Amen to that. The arrow is certainly pointing up. It should continue in that direction. Malcolm Honline, Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. Uh, 8.01 is candlelighting in New York. Make sure you know when things start where you are. It's Erev Shabbos Hazon. It is Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim. This time each and every Friday, every Erev Shabbos, with great pleasure, we present Rabbi Benjamin Uden, spiritual leader emeritus, congregation Shomrei Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Uden. Good morning, Nachman. Good Erev Shabbos, everybody. Whoa. I'm pausing just because there's unfortunately so much to do this Erev Shabbos. This Shabbos, we have the privilege of reading Parshas Devarim. We start the fifth book of the Torah. According to the Chinuch, there are two mitzvos in this Parsha, which we'll go back to in a moment. And this Shabbos has the uh, designation. It is called Shabbos Chazon, after the beginning of the Haftorah, which comes concludes the three weeks, the Shabbos and the Torah before Tisha B'Av. I want to share with you a very interesting thought first before we get to the laws of Tisha B'Av, and that is how Rav Salavechik Zechrona Levracha pointed out that the two mitzvos found in Devarim are two negative, restrictive mitzvos, which do not apply to individuals per se, but rather they are for the judges. That number one, we should not appoint as a judge one who is incapable of being a judge, simply doesn't know, was put there for uh, reasons of 
not what you know, but who you know. And second of all, that the judges are not to be afraid when they judge a person who was wealthy, a person who was important in the community, to judge properly and not be afraid of the consequence of their decision. Now, it's interesting if one looks in the parsha where these two laws are placed. After all, it begins the parsha with Moshe explaining to the Jewish people where you are, you're about to enter the land of Israel. Immediately after that, that is in Rishon, the first Aliyah. In the second Aliyah, we have the importance of the judges and how they had the proper judicial system in the Midbar. And then only after that, we have the incident of the spies uh, and the rest of the parasha. Now, the question is, what are these mitzvahs and laws of proper judicial system doing right before we come into the land? And Rav Salvechik said beautifully to teach us how, as a prerequisite for our holding on to the land, there must be proper justice. And therefore, number one, if you look in the Siddur, a very interesting observation that Rav Salvechik made is that the eighth bracha in the Shemona Esrei is Rifa'enu. A baby is circumcised on the eighth day. And therefore, the Gemara in Megillah 17b teaches that the bracha for Rifua comes to the babies, that they should be uh, healed on the eighth day, and therefore Rifua is number eight. After Rifua comes the bracha for Parnasa, we ask Hashem for our sustenance in Israel, worldwide, and then comes the bracha for kibbutz Golios, in gathering of the exiles. Why in why Parnassa comes before in gathering of the exiles? A beautiful idea, just not for now. But interestingly, right after the ingathering of the exiles, which happens to be the tenth bracha, you would imagine, which basically was saying, bring them home. What should come next? Should come next, bring them to Jerusalem, etc. No. In between, the idea of Kibbutz Galios in bracha, number 10, comes one, two, three. Three brachos related to justice. Whoa. Hoshiba Shavtenu Kivarishona, bring back the Sanhedrin. The idea is proper judgment. And Why? Because once we're saying bring the Jews home, they should realize what is the bedrock of our claim to the land of Israel, that we have an honest judicial system. And therefore, <clears throat> even in the Haftorah, the Navi Yeshaya bemoans the fact that once upon a time, the city was a city known, Jerusalem, known for its honesty, integrity, 
And now, oy, 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 it is, take a look in verse 21, how she has become a harlot, faithful city that was full of justice, in which righteousness was wont to lodge, now murderers. And therefore, again, the closing paragraph of the Haftorah is, I will return my hand upon you, and I will return your judges as in earliest times, your counselors as at first, and after that, you shall be called city of righteousness. Whoa. So I hope we get the point across that we start with this very important idea of honesty and integrity. And upon this, we have the foundation of Eretz Yisrael. Okay, let us start with a review of some of the laws of Tishabov, which is unfortunately, well, I shouldn't say that. It's coming up this coming Wednesday night and Thursday. Emir Hashem, we are promised. That's a, such a strong word. And this is what the whole idea that we live, and if I have time, we'll talk about it at the end, and if not, I owe it to you. But we live with an incredible dialectic. On the one hand, it is a sad, tragic day. The first and second base on Migdash and other tragedies have occurred throughout the years to the Jewish people on this day. But on the other hand, as we find in the first chapter of Eicha, Lamentations, which we read Wednesday night, sitting low on the ground in a dark environment, Korah Olai Moed, this day is going to be a holiday. And it's while it's literally nothing less than a contradiction in terms, a sad fast day and a holiday, this is the incredible ability of the Jew to synthesize the two, as I'll try to show. So already this coming Wednesday afternoon, if we have to, unfortunately, already after mid the day, approximately a little after one, it's best only to learn those items or those a- aspects of halacha related to Tisha B'Av. Okay, now, interesting, Tachanun is not recited during the Mincha Tefillah, Erev Tisha B'Av, this coming Wednesday. As we wouldn't say it, as we didn't say two days ago, Erev Rosh Chodesh, amazing, because literally we can feel it coming. It's coming. It's going to be a holiday. Now, next Wednesday evening, all right, aside from drinking a lot, enough water and find out whatever is good for you, that you should be able to have a meaningful fast, there is an additional meal called the Suda Hamavsekes, the final meal which is eaten uh, before the fast. And this can technically be done any time after mid the day until sunset on this coming Wednesday afternoon, the eighth day of half. Now, first, the ideal way to do this is to have your supper, recite Birkas HaMazon, and then go to Shul for Mincha, and upon returning from Mincha, 
you eat your suda mafsekes. That's probably and understandably not to finish one meal because a mazon wash and start again. So ideally, you should have a mincha in between. If one can't, then still one would do just that. If they are benching for the first meal, you would bench and then wash again for the suda mafsekes. Now, this meal should three or more people should not talking about adult men should not eat this meal together in order not to require a zimun but if three or more did sit together there should still not be a zimun and the meal should be eaten low sitting either on the ground on the bottom step of a staircase while you're still wearing shoes because this is before sunset and after the meal if you're home you can still sit on a chair until sunset till shkia. during the Sudam of Sekes one may not eat two different foods which would basically be to remind you of your Seder plate an interesting concept namely a Suda Chashuva and this should not be a Suda Chashuva what is eaten during the meal is usually a hard-boiled egg and many have the custom of dipping the hard-boiled egg into some ashes okay and if not hard-boiled egg lentils the idea being something round as what we do give a mourner when they come back from the cemetery as a kind of sauda <clears throat> sudas havra the idea is we're trying to in our minds capture the feeling and reliving unfortunately those moments of intense mourning to help us focus on the uh, upcoming fast of Tish of Av. Okay, tea or coffee could be drunk at the Sudam Absekis. Raw vegetables and fruit may be eaten, and cheese can be eaten at that meal. Fashtetzach, alcoholic beverages, beverages rather, should not be consumed during this meal. Okay, usually after the um, Sudam Avsekis, one accepts the fast if one wants to brush their teeth or do something else, not accept the fast yet, they should make a stipulation. Okay, the laws are actually Tishabov. So Tishabov and the laws begin with Shkia, sunset on the 8th of Av. Now, Wednesday in the New York area, Tish Shkia is 8.17, which means that you're not going to sit and eat your Sudas Havra, Sudas, excuse me, Mavsekes, till 8.16. But just know that that is when it must be over. And starting with 8.17, all the laws of Tish above begin, which means that 
Eating and drinking, one. Washing one's body, two. Marital relations, three. Anointing oneself with any kind of uh, lotions, aftershave, cosmetics, lipstick, and finally, leather shoes. Understandably, this is, there are two nights during the year that the mikvah is closed, and that is the night of Yom Kippur and the night of Tisha B'Av. Okay. One is not permitted to rinse one's mouth or use mouthwash on Tisha B'Av. Understandably, you shouldn't be smoking all year long and make sure you're not smoking on Tishabov at least not until midday. I don't give you permission to fast, to sorry, to smoke, excuse me, after Chatzos as well. Now, pregnant or nursing women should ideally go into Tishabov. I am fasting. Two words remember, no heroics. If anybody else comes down with a little headache, I'll say, come on, you can do it. Not a pregnant or nursing mother. As soon as you feel any discomfort, you should fast. I'm sorry, break your fast, but otherwise go into it. Interesting. A sick person whose doctor says that they are not to fast, they're not to fast. Listen to the doctor. Very important to know. Whereas on Yom Kippur, there is a halachic way of eating known as pachos mikashir, less than a koseves, less than a certain amount, and in more than a certain period of time. So we wait in between eatings. None of this applies to Tisha B'Av. The only thing I'm going to say is that if somebody has to eat, well, they preferably should not be having ice cream for dessert. Okay, a woman who gave birth during the past 30 days is not obligated to fast. Okay, now one may not wash or immerse in water any part of the body except, number one, we wake up in the morning, neglavasa, very important, alternating right left, right left, right left, to the knuckles. And then with a little bit of moisture on your fingers, use your fingers to especially take away anything from your eyes so that you have clarity as well. You can, if your hands get dirty during the day, any which way, then by all means you can wash your hands. If you're preparing food for children, you can wash your hands, you know, anything that has to be washed, you know, for the food for the kids. And after using the bathroom, we wash our hands to the knuckles. And one who has to wash food can do so good. Now, one who must eat on Tishabov, he can, and they're going to have, forgive me, a sandwich. So they would wash their hands for Natilas Yadayim. No Mayimachronim. One who perspires heavily can use deodorant. All other beauty aids may not be applied. Some bathing is forbidden. Leather shoes or shoes covered with leather may not be worn. Males under the age of 13 and girls 
under the age of 12, who understand what's going on, that today is a sad day, should also not wear leather shoes. Let me explain why halachically a child prior to bar mitzvah or bas mitzvah from the letter of the law they can eat. Why? Because what is chinuch my friends? Chinuch my friends means I am training my child to do as a child what please God they will someday do as an adult. But here come on my 12 year old boy today, he's not going to fast next year. Next year is going to be a Yom Tov, so I don't have to train him. Now, if he wants to feel like I'm part of the community, fine, and he wants to fast part of the day, okay. But it's not like Yom Kippur that we train them to fast on on Yom Kippur, because they will, he and she, as an adult, fast Yom Kippur the rest of their life. Sleeping this coming Wednesday night should not be done in the usual way, but in a less comfortable way. That means if you usually use two pillows, try with one. If you do with none, try, like I said, without a pillow. Now, and until Chatzos 101 or so, on Thursday, one must sit low on the ground. Watch your back. If need be, get up, walk around a few times, and or on a low stool, okay? Again, like a mourner, that's what we are. We are all available. If you have to drive, you obviously sit in the car, but you should remain standing if you're taking a bus or a train. One should not learn Torah on Tisha B'Av. This is such a basic idea because it teaches us what is Torah. Torah is, as we say, in Tillam, on Shabbos and Yom Tov morning, it literally gladdens, makes us happy. And therefore, there are parts of Torah that can and should be studied on Tisha B'Av, parts of the Sefer Eov, parts of Yermiyohu, third chapter of the Gemara Moe Kotam, fifth chapter of the Gemara Gitin, uh, Sefer Echa, Megillas Echa, but all this should not be studied in depth. Okay. Preferably, writing should not be done on Tishabov until after Chatzos. Okay, Echa should be read and, if possible, in one's home as well on the night of Tishabav to a minimal amount of illumination. Housework should not be done on Tisha B'Av. You can make the beds after mid the day. No business should really be conducted from the night until midday. And even then, don't be so orangutan, so involved in the business after one o'clock when you've gotten up from the floor, which we'll talk about in a moment. Even then, you should still remember today is Tisha B'Av. Okay? Now, we don't greet one another. Good morning on Tisha B'Av. And on Wednesday night, we don't say good night to people. 
after mid the day, people may wish each other mazel tov, and exchanging gifts is prohibited on Tisha B'Av. And even and if you have to prepare a meal for after Tisha B'Av, even that certainly should not be done before mid the day. If there's a bris on Tisha B'Av, it takes place after Kinos, the moil of the Sadik, the father and mother of the baby may change into Shabbos clothes after Kinos. They still should not wear leather shoes. Shabbos clothes should be taken off after the bris, and the meal of the Sa'uda takes place at night. Now, let's understand for a moment why it is that after mid the day we get off from the floor. And the answer is because in the afternoon of the ninth of Av, this Beis Amigdash was put ablaze. And therefore, oh my goodness, listen carefully, the Gemara teaches us that the 69th, uh, I'm sorry, 79th Tehillim, Mizmor Le'osaf, which means a song to a song. Now, how does the uh, 79th chapter continue? Elokim, boss, we're talking to Hashem. The uh, nations have ouch come in to your mikdash and they have defiled it. So, how is this a mikdash? So, I'll tell you very quickly. The Gemara teaches in Kedushin, talking about the respect in Kibbut Av, Rabbi showed great respect to his father. His father asked for a cup of water, and when he brought the water to his father, his father had dozed off. He didn't wake his father, he stood there with the water waiting, and while he waited, he had insight to that 79th Psalm. If it talks about Lo'aleinu, the destruction of the base on Migdash, why is it a mizmor? Why is it a psalm? A song, it should have been a kino, a lamentation. And Rashi gives a beautiful answer, and that is because we are singing, and this is the greatness and insight of the Jew, that he's able to say, thank you, Hashem, for taking out your wrath on a building, on Eitzim and on Avonim, on wood and on stone, and not taking it out on the Jewish people. We are still here. Am Yisrael Chai, Netzach Yisrael Lo Yishoker. And this is part, uh, and he realized, therefore, as he was doing Kibbut Av, that Hashem acts to us as a loving father. And even though at times a father has to punish a child, and even though throughout history Hashem had to punish us, pinch yourselves, everybody. We are part of Jewish destiny, and there will be that third base Amigdash. So, because there will be the third base Amigdash, doesn't mean the opposite, that we don't have to mourn now. No, we are K-N-O-W. No, first of all, what we are mourning for. We are mourning for the loss of a base Amigdash and that special relationship that we have with Hashem at that time. We're mourning for ourselves what we are missing. And finally, we mourn for Hashem.
We mourn for Shechinta Bigalusa. We mourn for the fact that his presence is not felt neither nor as it should be. In Eretz Yisrael, the best is yet to come. Throughout the world, wherever Jews are, we don't have, and therefore we are crying for him, that his glory, as we find in the Gemara, brachos at the bottom of Gimel Amar Aleph, that every day Hashem cries out in woe to a king to unfortunately have had his, um, his people go into exile. Woe to the father who is bereft of his children. So this is what we are mourning on Tish Ab'av. But remember, after Chatzos, we have this kind of uh, focus on, please God, what's going to be in the uh, future. Now, just one last thing in terms of in the Beisach Knesses, the Paroches, the covering of the Ark, is either removed or pushed to the side before Mayriv, Wednesday night, and it stays that way until after Mincha on Tisha B'Av in the uh, afternoon. Okay? After Shmona Esrei of Mayri, Tiskabel is recited after the Kaddish of the Chazen, but after Eicha until Mincha of the uh, Tishabav in the afternoon, Tiskabel Tzolo's home, which means except our prayers, it's as if there's an iron curtain is omitted in the Kaddish by the Chazen. Eicha is recited on Wednesday night after Mayriv, after the Kaddish. There's no bracha before Eicha. And after reading Eicha, the prayer of Avolat Seal is recited beginning with the Pasuk, the Ato Kodosh. When uh, Kriyashba is recited before going to sleep on the night of Tisha B'Av. Okay, important to remember, Tisha B'Av morning, this coming th- next Thursday morning, we do not wear talis and tefillin at Shacharis. They are put on at Mincha. The talis katan is put on in the morning, and the appropriate bracha is recited, and we don't kiss the tzitzis during Kriya Shema Shacharis. The bracha of Sh'osali Kotsarki is recited in Shacharis, and we do say Korbanos and Mizmor Lesoda on Tisha B'Av morning. Now the following tefillos are deleted. We don't say Tachanun. We don't say Avinu Malkeinu. Remember, Avinu Malkeinu is said on all other fast days. Remember, this is that dialectic. We don't say Kehler Chapayim and the Hiratzon after the reading of the Torah. We don't say Lam Natsayach, Mizmor David, Yan Hashem Beyond Sorah. Amazing. There's no Yom Sorah like Tisha B'Av, and we don't say it. We don't say Pita Makatores, Enkelokenu, 
and Vanizos Brisi is omitted. In Shmone Esrei, Birkas Kohanim, right, is omitted in Shacharis, and it is said at Mincha. Tehillim should not be recited on Tisha B'Av, even for a sick person. We read Tisha B'Av morning from Ve'eschanan Kisolid Bonim, and the Torah is a Sof Asifim. After the Torah is returned to the Oron Thursday morning, we recite Kinos. Now listen carefully, very important. Kinos is written very often in a flowery language. Use any language of translation that will help you understand it. Use Russian, any language, English, the art scroll, and other uh, Kinos are very good to help us with. It's a wonderful um, book of Kinos with the commentary of Rav Salavejik, Sechrona Levracha, which gives you background and more understanding of each of the Kinos. Okay, there's a custom if one can to visit a Jewish cemetery uh, after Kinos in the afternoon and at Mincha, Kriyashma is not recited. Talis and Philon are worn, and the Shir Shalyom is recited. Finally, let's understand something. Oh, yes, at Mincha, we add number one, Nachim, very important, and finally, we add Anenu in our Shmona Esrei. Okay, and if one is eating, they have to eat, and they are reciting Birkas HaMazon, you would include the prayer of Nachem before the recitation of the bracha of Uvnei Yerushalayim. Finally, let's just be aware that since the base Migdash continued burning uh, until midday on the 10th, certain things such as listening to music, drinking wine, and eating meat should not be done until midday, one o'clock, on Friday. Thursday night, because it is Erev Shabbos, one can do laundry, and if need be, one needs to shave for Shabbos, one can do it Thursday night. I want to just end on something positive, and that is that the, once again, it's called a moed, it's called a holiday, and this concept is that if a holiday brings us closer to Hashem, let's just remember one thing, the 31st kina, and it's oftentimes sung with a nigan, is the contrast of Bitsesi mi Mitzrayim and Bitsesi mi Yerushalayim. We contrast how happy it was when we left Egypt, how sad it was when we left Yerushalayim. 
But my friends, let's remember one thing and we close with this. They were both supernatural. We understand the celebration of Pesach was wow, way beyond the norm. And so too, unfortunately, the persecution of the Jews has been way beyond the norm. And ironically, from this itself, we see that he is HaKadosh Baruch involved in both. And the fact that I know that the patch comes from my Abba, who loves me, makes the patch much more easier to accept. I accept his loving patch. And Amir Tashem, as the Novi Zacharia taught in chapter 8, Tzom HaChamishi, the fast of the fifth, fifth month, which is the month of Av, will be L'Sason U'Lesimcha. We pray for happiness and joy for the Jewish community. Amir Hashem, if not this year, for sure next year and for the future. Shabbat Shalom and a meaningful fast to all. J.M. and the A.M. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. My thanks to Rabbi Yudin. As we get set for Shabbos Chazon, Shabbos Parshas Dvarim, candlelighting in New York, 801. Make sure you know when things start where you are. Again, candlelighting in New York, 801. Our spoken word, J.M. and the A.M. format continues on Monday, starting at 6 a.m. Eastern Time with our Iberal Wine. Rabbi Wine's lecture is available at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. You could also... Uh, Log on to rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com. Reminder for Bergen County and beyond, anybody out there in this audience, anybody anywhere who wants to hear Rabbi Osman speak on the Sunday, the chief rabbi of the Ukraine is going to be at Congregation Keter Torah on Romer Avenue in Teaneck, New Jersey, this coming Sunday beginning at 10.15, followed by a Q&A. You'll have an opportunity to hear what's happening on the front lines, what's happening with the Jewish communities of uh, the Ukraine. And uh, in addition, you'll be able to support the efforts of the chief rabbi. The more money they have for the mitzvah for Ukraine campaign, the more they can help people with medication and food and basic essentials and necessities, which are uh, in dire need, as you can imagine, in war-torn Ukraine. Go to the website and uh, support the cause, officeofchiefrabbi.org. Again, that's office of chiefrabbi.org. And again, he speaks Sunday morning at the Keter Torah, Romer Avenue in Teaneck, beginning at 10.15. Uh, next week, of course, Thursday is, uh, is Tisha B'Av, and then we will switch uh, Friday morning back into our regular format as we get ready for Shabbos Nachamu on Tisha B'Av. We are anticipating having a Tisha B'Av service on the air as we've done in prior years and we'll have all the details for you early next week right here at JM in the AM. Time to say good Shabbos on this Erev Shabbos Chazon, Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim at JM in the AM.
Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners' sponsored digital radio. Round the world of web at AlchemSiegel.com and the AlchemSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up an amazing day and an amazing week here at JMM. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. And a big thank you to those who commented on the app regarding my father's uh, eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe must or I should say much, appreciated. Uh, have a, a peaceful and wonderful Shabbos Chazon. And uh, we are back uh, Monday morning. Matis, of course, with JM Sunday. This coming Sunday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, Saturday Night Seagull with Avrami and Rabbi Eliezer's Wickler tomorrow night. 
here at the Nahum Siegel Network. And of course, your Erev Shabbos music mix, three weeks format, all through the day here at the Nahum Siegel Network, brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem. Have a fabulous Friday, a wonderful Shabbos, great weekend until Monday morning, Nahum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.